So we know that in the food environment as a whole, almost 70% of the food supply in the United States is hyperpalatable. Fat and sodium hyperpalatable foods are like, um, are the most common type of food well, in our food supply. I think that'll be surprising because yes. most people would, I assume, would first point to sugar. Could there be any other type of company or other type of industry that knows how to create addictive products and that may have found their way into the food supply? So, so that's when I turned my attention to uh, the tobacco industry. In today's episode, I sit down with psychologist Tara Fazzino. Tara holds a PhD in experimental psychology and an MA in clinical practice in psychology. She works at Kansas University as an associate professor of psychology, a translational research scientist, and the associate director of the Coffrin Logan Center for Addiction, Research, and Treatment. Tara's research spans the areas of addiction, obesity, and eating disorders, and the use of mobile technology to intervene in health risk behaviors. In this episode, we focus on what makes certain foods hyperpalatable and how we can use this information on a personal level to eat fewer calories and enhance satiety. At a more macro level, we talk about how we can influence our current food system to deprioritize hyperpalatable food. Interesting topics we cover include the surprising link between big tobacco and the food industry, how food companies engineer food to keep you eating, the difference between hyperpalatable and ultra-processed foods, what combinations of ingredients increase palatability, whether obesity is a food addiction problem, and much more. Please enjoy my conversation with Tara Fazzino, PhD. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus 
the essential aid contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the optimal omega plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking optimal omega plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. When I think of the chronic disease burden and how we're going to put a dent in that, reduce the incidence of cardiometabolic disease from type 2 diabetes to cardiovascular disease to non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. I think right at the center of that is solving this puzzle of how food is affecting appetite, specifically how different foods or combinations of ingredients are increasing appetite, increasing energy intake, and obesity subsequently which I think points to your work being some of the most important work in nutrition science, which I'm hoping becomes evident by the end of today's conversation. You spend a lot of time focusing on palatability and this idea of hyper palatable foods. Maybe we start there. What, what is palatability and what is a hyper palatable food? Yeah, so, so this is a good point to start. Um, palatability is generally used as um, like a subjective term, um, you know, meaning how, you know, how appealing or how pleasant, you know, it is to ingest a specific food. Um, and, and foods should be palatable for us to want to consume them, right? So like a whole um, fresh apple or, you know, a raw piece of salmon that'll be cooked, you know, these foods should be palatable. They should be pleasant to consume. The distinction is that um, with hyper palatable foods, they contain combinations of nutrients um, that don't occur together in nature. So nutrients that um, can together kind of exaggerate the flavor profile of a food. So those would be combinations of fat and sodium, fat and sugar, and carbohydrates and sodium. And so the premise there is that these foods have these combinations of palatability-inducing nutrients that occur at like moderate to high thresholds. And the that is very distinct from foods that are found in nature, which typically just have one single palatability-related nutrient. And so together, those food, those um, nutrients, the premise is that they can create an artificially um, kind of exaggerated, um, highly, highly palatable eating occasion, and that it can make them difficult to stop eating. So you, you said food should be palatable. So we need some reward value from, from food so that we can survive, right? Oh, 100%. It keeps us going back to get calories. But what I'm hearing is that when there is a particular combination of ingredients and we might step through those three different combinations uh, throughout this conversation in a little bit more detail but when there is a specific combination of ingredients then you can kind of artificially elevate that reward 
that that you're getting and so that is increasing appetite beyond what their body actually requires from an energy perspective it has the potential because it creates such a highly rewarding as such an intense um pleasurable eating experience these foods can have um can activate in kind of an excessive manner our brain reward neurocircuitry in the same degree as some substances some other psychoactive substances and can also delay the engagement of our physiological satiety mechanisms so that can lead to us um consuming more calories per meal just because it's so good and um you know that sensation when um when you're eating something and and your your brain is like oh my god like this is so good like i need another bite and your stomach is is like please stop i'm going to explode like that's what i'm getting at right so these foods kind of hit you from two angles mm -hmm. increase the reward value mm -hmm. and then reduce those satiety inbuilt satiety mechanisms that would ordinarily slow us down yes the and i can explain a little bit more about that piece of it yeah yeah let's go into what's happening i guess in, in the in the brain or the rest of the body that from a physiological point of view that is resulting in enhanced reward and then a turning down of those satiety mechanisms yeah absolutely so in terms of the enhanced reward so there is some neuroscience research that was conducted in humans to support the premise that the combination of certain palatability inducing nutrients um, when consumed together um, can have uh, synergistic effects that make the, the um, activation in our brain reward um, neurocircuitry, um, you know, specifically the dopamine um, circuit um, in a in a high, at a higher and more intense threshold than um, if either of those nutrients would be consumed in isolation. And so what that means is that um, we can end up consuming some foods that, um, you know, can have really powerful effects that are experienced, um, you know, when we're consuming them, but have a very strong kind of uh, neuroscientific basis for them. What's and, the the like evolutionary explanation for oh, yeah. that? Is it is it that these combination of ingredients somehow signal to the body that whatever we're eating is is going to enhance survival? So so food at its baseline, like you know, getting back to the the premise of like food should be palatable, they should be enjoyable to ingest because that promotes our survival. Um, so food consumption does activate our brain reward neurocircuitry. Like that's part of the process of like us, you know, receiving or, you know, having reinforcement from food because it, you know, increases the likelihood that we'll consume food another time and that promotes our survival. So, so at its basis, like there is activation in our brain reward and our circuitry when we consume whole fresh foods and that promotes our survival. Um, and so the foods that are hyper palatable, um, basically since they don't occur in nature, our bodies and our brains aren't really prepared to receive and ingest these types of foods. Um, and, 
when we do ingest them, they can activate those same pathways and have some like really exaggerated effects that whole foods don't have and and they they shouldn't have, you know, because that and and so that that's kind of the the tricky point about these foods. And and there's been a lot of um research to suggest that you know, on a single occasion, these can have some sort of, um, you know, excessive activation of this reward um, pathway in the brain. And that's in a single occasion. But with repeated consumption over time, um, many meals, over days and weeks and months, um, there's actually some emerging evidence to suggest that these foods can have um, some really substantial effects on our neurobiology in a way that um, that is also similar to what we see with um, regular and um, repetitive consumption of various types of substances, including alcohol and nicotine. So, for example, the uh, over time, these foods um, can lead to um, changes in the brain that that make us um, highly motivated to seek out and consume these foods. So that means that we become hypersensitive to the cues in the environment that may predict that these foods are going to be available. So with that repeated exposure, is the reward that we're getting gradually becoming less and less for a given food or dose in that over time through repeated exposure, we actually need more and more of these hyperpalatable foods to get that same sense of satisfaction or relief? Yeah, that that's part of the premise. That's a, that's a great question because this sort of gets at something that's been really well established in kind of the basic scientific literature and is now being examined with the lens towards, you know, hyperpalatable foods is this distinction between um, our motivational drive to seek out and consume various foods and then our actual experience when we consume them. So the drive is is um, really kind of what what, you know, well, as it sounds like it, you know, it, it promotes our, our seeking and, and, you know, um, initiating the intake of these foods. But the um, the kind of, you know, subjective experience of actually consuming them is kind of is distinct. And so those two in the scientific literature, they're described as wanting, um, which is the um, the drive um, and the and then liking is the subjective response of actually consuming them. And so over time, there is um, evidence to suggest that individuals um, become hypersensitive to um, the cues in the environment that indicate these foods may be available. So that's the wanting. And that's what becomes, we call it sensitization. And is that wanting driven by dopamine? It's part in the pathway, but there are also some changes that occur in, um, in the prefrontal cortex as well that can which the prefrontal cortex is really important for like our self-regulation and things like that so um so some of these um so some of those are connected and so that is kind of part of that process whereas the liking the subjective experience which you were asking about can either may stay the same or it might like people may actually like the food slightly less and so they may be seeking you know more, you know, um, of the same types of foods to try to get that kind of initial effect. Yeah. It'd be interesting, and I'm not sure if anyone's done this, but to 
scan brain activity during feeding and look at how hyperpalatable foods affect someone who has had a lot of exposure to them through their life versus someone who rarely eats them. Mm -hmm. Yes. And there, there's been some preliminary work done in this area. Um, and, um, primarily the most compelling work has been done actually in adolescence. Um, and they have demonstrated that, um, you know, in a few studies looking, uh, you know, kind of cross-sectionally, so a single time point, um, you know, imaging folks, um, in a scanner and administering, um, I think it was like a milkshake, which would have like elevated fat and sugar, um, you know, individuals who had like a lot of prior exposure to and regular consumption of milkshakes or other related things like ice cream and things like that, you know, showed a, a, a greater kind of response and evidence of sensitization compared to individuals who didn't consume it as much. And there's also some emerging evidence that kind of looks at that longitudinally when people are experimentally told to like consume this, let's say, you know, sugar sweetened beverage or whatever every single day for like two weeks and we'll, you know. What yeah. what's the percentage of the typical, say, American adults diet that would be coming from hyperpalatable foods? So we know that in the food environment as a whole, almost 70% of the food supply in the United States is hyperpalatable. Um, yeah, our, our latest research found that, you know, like 69% of the food supply as of 2018, which was the, yeah. <laughs> so so we, we, you know, our assumption is that it could be ticking up. Um, and we've done some work to from the 80s up until more recently that has kind of demonstrated an increasing trend of, availability in the food supply over time. So um, that combined with um, looking at studies that have looked at other constructs um, and tell you can tell me if I'm kind of jumping too far ahead or we need to define things as we're going here, but there's no rules. <laughs> um, so let me say that we haven't been able to look at a longitude, uh, like a, a study in the US population or any population for that matter, that has indicated the um, percentage in the diet. We've looked at just the entire food supply in a whole. Um, but what we can say is that um, a kind of like related-ish constructs, for example, ultra-processed foods, which undergo extensive industrial processing and include um, kind of very limited whole ingredients and, um, you know, are kind of highly industrially refined. Um, consumption of those in the diet is like over 60%, um, I believe, in, in um, U.S. adults. And so, you know, the, the premise there is that, you know, there's about 70% overlap with foods that are ultra processed and may have these hyper palatable elements that also contain ingredients that can make them you know, excessively palatable. So on the whole, you know, I think we can say that like, you know, 60, 70% ish of the food supply and probably the diet. So the majority of someone's diet is likely coming from these hyper palatable foods, which have this artificially enhanced kind of reward value, making them very difficult to put down, very easy to overconsume, which ends up kind of manifesting as increased body fat and that, you know, 70% of the adult population in this country, I think, is overweight or obese. Yeah. Um, so that, I guess, creates the context for our entire uh, conversation. You mentioned 
alcohol before. Yeah. Given the high percentage of calories coming from hyperpalatable foods and your understanding, I guess, of how this is affecting physiology, can we say that a large percentage of adult Americans are addicted to food? Is there such a thing as food addiction? And are we talking about a psychological addiction or a physical dependence, physical addiction? I really appreciate this question. I'm, I'm really glad you asked it because um, there is, and I, I like to make a very clear distinction between the premise that some foods may be very highly rewarding um, and may have um, addictive properties. Um, and that is distinct from the sort of clinical premise of food addiction um, as kind of a clinical syndrome that substantially influences somebody's functioning in their daily life. So, and those things are, so those things are quite different. And, and to pull in the corollary with alcohol again, right? Like alcohol, um, you know, it, various alcoholic beverages, we can, con you know, consider them substances in a way that, you know, um, alcohol has specific psychoactive effects and can garner addiction among vulnerable individuals, but in and of itself, it's a substance. And so in, in some sense, I kind of, the, the premise around hyperpalatable foods is similar because like foods themselves, like the hyperpalatable foods themselves can be kind of viewed from a substance lens where um, they can garner addictive um, kind of behavioral traits or compulsive consumption among vulnerable people, but on the whole are the, are, you know, distinct as like a substance. So, um, and in the, and we see this again with, with alcohol, um, in the U S population, the vast majority of adults say that they drink alcohol, like they currently drink in some form. A lot of that is very low level and the percentage of individuals who exhibit um, like problematic drinking or risky drinking or a full alcohol use disorder are much, much lower um, than the amount of adults who are exposed to alcohol. So, um, so therein, you know, is kind of the distinction between like, you know, a lot of individuals can engage with alcohol, um, but for, and for most of them, they will not become addicted. Um, and it's available in, you know, kind of pretty widely in the population uh, or, you know, you know, in our environment, but in, and we see like, you know, around 20% or less who exhibit like risky drinking behavior in some form that could, um, you know, garner like alcohol problems. So if we, Liken that to food, you know, like hyperpalatable foods as a substance, most of the population, if not everybody, you know, has had exposure to these foods. They're extremely difficult to avoid, even when you're trying to. Um, but we we know that um, from some really excellent work, um, my colleague Ashley Gerhardt at the University of Michigan has really um, studied the the phenomenon of food of um, food addiction and has demonstrated that like this does seem to be a significant problem. But again, um, you know, roughly around uh, twenty percent, I think, relative to like basically the entire population that has been exposed to these foods. You know, so does that help to kind of yeah contextualize that? That yeah. makes me wonder a few things. One, what makes someone vulnerable? 
Mm-hmm. Is it is it biology, genetics? Is it socioeconomic status, education? And is it the same things that make someone vulnerable to alcohol? Is there a lot of overlap with what would make someone vulnerable to food food addiction? Yeah. Great question. So the first question regarding like what makes individuals vulnerable, um, again, we can kind of take from the addiction literature and I and I reference kind of a lot the addiction kind of science area. Um, and because we kind of, you know, I'm we use that to understand, you know, um, well, food addiction, for one, is based directly off of the substance use disorder criteria, um, although it's not considered like a um, clinical diagnosis yet in the um, in our uh, diagnostic criteria, but there's a lot that is kind of inferred from that area to help us understand and like the theories and the mechanisms behind what might be going on here. So um, informed from that area and you know what we have seen from the um, from the kind of um, food space is that you know yes individuals um, some have. Um, neurobiological vulnerabilities, um, and um, other others may have like trait-based factors that can increase their um, their risk for kind of um, uh, propensity to consume these types of foods. For example, they may be particularly sensitive to the the reward. Um, you know, that they experience when consuming these foods. Um, other times, like, yeah, certainly the the issue of like, um, you know, bringing up socioeconomics and um, thinking about um, the kind of structure and the degree of um, like uh, socioeconomic inequities in the United States. We know that a lot of individuals have, um, you know, live in, um, in environments where they have um, low... Uh, food security or food insecurity, so they don't have enough, you know, food to eat on a regular basis to um, function. And in these environments, um, that uh, people, what people have most available is these hyperpalatable foods because they're the basically the cheapest to purchase in the U.S. food supply. And so there is a structural inequity um, that forms the basis of that. That that likely increases. Um, you know, the um, kind of vulnerability to having to consume these regularly because there's just no other alternative. And then that may make it difficult for for people. What about the, I guess, the mental health status of the population? I have to wonder if someone is experiencing depressive symptoms or anxiety, are they going to be more vulnerable turning to certain hyperpalatable foods to get that kind of instant relief even though it's very self-defeating i guess in the long run it it could be making their mental health worse certainly their physical health but do you think that the i guess the happiness of the nation plays a role in the consumption of hyper palatable foods and then that makes me wonder if you were to remove hyper palatable foods do people start to look elsewhere Hmm. i think in terms of the type of temporary relief that these foods can provide individuals. Um, it, it We certainly have seen um, through scientific research that eating these types of foods to cope with like stress or negative emotions um, is, it can certainly be a risk factor for, you know, kind of consuming these 
types of foods a lot. Sometimes um, that can lead to like um, uh, binge eating and things like that. Um, and and yeah, for others, you know, eating to you know to cope may you know be kind of a response that um, um, a behavioral you know kind of um, piece of the repertoire that, you know, people seek out these foods to help ameliorate or anxiety or things like that. But I think that, I think that the premise that, you know, these foods can be so rewarding is, um, it's a concerning point because they are so easy to turn to, you know, like they're everywhere, um, and they're cheap, you know? And, and so I think that that is certainly, um, part of the problem of having an environment that is so saturated with these foods is that they're just so easy to get to. And they're very like socially acceptable, right? Because it's like the population, you know, it's it's the majority of our food supply. And so I think, um, you know, that can certainly that, you know, we have seen that, you know, certain people have a tendency to um, cope with stress and negative emotions by, you know, using these types of foods. Right. Um, Which then could, I guess, distract from... You know, what is the 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 core issue or the core reason for that person's mental state and not to not to suggest that it's personal responsibility because a lot of that could be dictated by society and just you know general inequities across society but it's an interesting thing to kind of ponder you mentioned types of food and we haven't really made it clear yet what hyperpalatable foods look like and I think people could probably uh, you know have a have a guess but it might be that people are thinking it's just the colorful packaged foods in the grocery stores are hyperpalatable foods just this kind of majority of ultra processed foods or could we be creating these hyperpalatable foods in our kitchen unknowingly are our favorite restaurants making them and and so we're going out for for dinner and being exposed to these types of foods Pretty much all of the above. <laughs> so, the um, the the piece that really struck me when I started doing this work, and I've seen as such a compelling pattern in the in the data sets that we analyze, is that the types of foods that are hyper palatable are often foods that are not necessarily on people's radar in a way of being like, oh, you know, I bet that's hyper palatable. Like, okay, you can tell, you know, you're not really telling me something that I don't already know, you know, like this Oreo or like, you know, they're like some easy go-to items that people are like, oh, you know, if I go to a, you know, a fast food place or, you know, the, so, so what the definition is, is able to kind of do, I think is, is highlight that a lot of our food supply in terms of like the main meals that we consume are the ones that have elevated fat and sodium. Um, fat and sodium hyperpalatable foods are like, um, are the most common type of food wow. in our food supply. I think that'll be surprising because yes. most people would, I assume, would first point to sugar. Yes. And in the literature as well, right? Um, there's been a lot of focus on like desserts, sweet items, things like that. But when we we took a data driven approach to when I started this area of work, 
to, you know, try to define like what are these to begin with. Um, I was surprised to see sodium pop up. Like it's in two of the three types of foods. And so I thought that that was curious and it's been an extremely reliable finding. And and an, a very interesting thread that has kind of pulled through this work that I've been conducting over five years now. And so, you know, fat and sodium hyperpalatable foods are things like, you know, um, main entrees, like meat, a lot of meat-based dishes, um, you know, are a lot of, um, you know, some breakfast items that are like savory that we might make at home, or we might go to a restaurant and eat. So like an omelet cooked with, um, you know, like, let's say all kind of more whole ingredients, like throw in some vegetables and some meat, like bacon and cheese and, you know, butter, olive oil and salt. And before you know it, um, you know, the, the, that may end up being fat and sodium hyperpalatable. And so a lot of the stuff that we consume, um, you know, is, is, is in our meals and in like our appetizers as well. Yeah. I've, um, I've got quite a few <laughs> friends who are chefs. Oh, and okay. Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> I, I learned a long time ago that their secret weapon and they call it SOS, salt, oil, sugar, <laughs> sprinkle that, okay, there you go. sprinkle that on any dish, put that into a marinade, into a sauce, into a salad dressing. And it, it makes just about anything taste good. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Recently, I've been working with friend of the pod, Dr. Will Bolsowitz on his new brand, 38 Terra, an evidence-based prebiotic supplement to optimize gut health. To facilitate online sales, 38 Terra uses Shopify. The major reason 38 Terra chose Shopify over other e-commerce platforms was because of Shopify's focus on customer conversion. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading e-commerce platforms. If you're going to spend time and money on marketing, you want to make sure you are converting the people who visit your site 
into loyal customers. What I also love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control in-house. The Shopify app store is home to thousands of customizable apps that can easily plug into your website to help with things like upselling, selling products on social media channels like Instagram and TikTok, and much more. To boost your conversion rate and grow your business, sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com forward slash proof. That's shopify.com forward slash proof, all in lowercase. Uh, what is it about this combination of ingredients that's affecting our reward centers in a different way to if, if we just had a packet of salt here and we would eat salt by itself, right? That's very rich in sodium. But that's not exactly going to be something we're going to be compelled to, to keep consuming. Exactly. So what's going on here when you combine fat with sodium or carbohydrates with sodium that changes that? Yeah. So the, the you know, fat and carbohydrates, like they – you know, we we know that like these these types of ingredients, um, you know, can activate um, you know our our blood glucose, particularly the carbohydrates, right? Um, and um, they can affect our glucose responding, which then connects directly to the dopamine reward neurocircuitry. There's an interesting thing about sodium um, or table salt is that salt uh, sodium can engage the opioid system. Um, yeah, <laughs> so which is the same that is is engaged by other right. you know um, oxycontin. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so that can and and also sugar to the point of like the SOS for the cooks that you mentioned from some of your chefs. Um, sugar also does that. I just outed a lot of chefs. I realize. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, friends. <laughs> so so there, there's something interesting about that. And there have and and the the literature has, in my kind of opinion and experience of having been in this area a little while, like really pretty dramatically overlooked sodium. Um I think it is because, you know, we think about the things, the ingredients that can directly contribute to calories, which is fat and carbohydrates. The, the amount of sodium that we put in anything is not going to contribute a substantial amount of calories, right? So I think it's an easy thing to kind of overlook, but when added to something, um, you know, can really make us consume quite a bit more of it. There were, um, there were, I found a few studies when I looked at this a while ago that, um, you know, used some like experimental lab studies where they fed, um, um, they fed, I think it was children like pasta dishes with varying levels of, um, fat and sodium. And they found that like just adding more sodium increased their consum consumption of that pasta meal by like 30%. So what's happening there from a biological point of view, evolutionary point of view, clearly there's some type of specific nutrient sensing to sodium that's saying to our body, eat more of that. Why? Yeah, I mean, like, we need a, a certain amount of sodium, you know, like, for our bodies to, like, function properly and healthily and things like that, right? So so I think that's part of it. But I also think that there's there's quite a bit that, like, we we aren't really sure about yet. And because 
I think sodium has has like not been examined from the role of like, how does it make people overeat? Like we know that, you know, sodium, people need a certain amount. Generally, when we look at the diets, like, you know, people in the U.S. consume way more, <laughs> you know, at a dietary level than they should. Um, but really thinking about sodium as one of these ingredients that can enhance our experience of palatability and kind of drive consumption is is something that I think, um, you know, is really we need to understand more about. Um, and, you know, that, that's kind of part of my interest and kind of my um, uh, my interest going forward is because we have seen that, like, sodium seems to be doing something very reliable here. And it's in the vast majority of foods in our food supply. And it's I think it's a little bit of a sleeper agent. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's it's. I'm just thinking out loud here. It's an essential nutrient. Yeah. So it's important mm -hmm. that we have this drive to get it. Mm -hmm. And for our ancestors in, let's say, relative to today's environment, a sodium dilute environment, there's less sodium available per calorie. Mm -hmm. It may have made sense to have that this drive for sodium to reach oh, however much they needed from an essential point of view. Yes. Yes. Because if you consume but, whole foods, they typically right. don't have that much sodium. So one would need to probably work pretty hard. Right. And they wouldn't have necessarily needed to evolve to kind of have this threshold whereby once you have a certain level of sodium in your body, then that drive goes away because it would have had to have killed people. You know, that, that sodium excess would have had to have literally killed people in order for that adaptation to, right. to occur. So, so this is super interesting. Uh, have you looked at, at sodium supply, sodium intake? Like over the last hundred years, a lot of people spend time focusing on how has consumption of fats changed or or sugar. What's happened to sodium intake? Um, in all honesty, I have not been able to look at that specifically. Although I know that in general, like you know, individuals' intake of sodium in you know like kind of westernized food environments has increased over time, and and now is much higher on average than it should be. Um, I, I think we need around, you know, the, the federal recommendation um, is like we need 2300 milligrams of sodium per day just to kind of, you know, maintain our normal, healthy bodily functions. And I think, it, you know, at least in the in the U.S. estimates are that on average, the intake is like 3400 mm. milligrams. So like, right. <laughs> yeah. And I think 80 percent or so of that's from packaged food. That's Not necessarily what people are putting oh, on yes, their yeah, food exactly. at home, yeah. albeit 20% is still a sort of significant chunk. But okay, so with that in mind, if you were able to go out and create policy that changed the food environment, would reducing sodium be towards the top of, of the list? Reducing Absolutely. sodium exposure? Absolutely. And you think yes. that would make a huge difference in energy consumption and, and rates of overweight obesity? I think it has huge potential because from my, you know, so from my work, two of the three types of hyperpalatable foods have elevated sodium as a key part of, of their um, criteria. And um, the degree to which these types of foods um dominate our food supply is, is pretty staggering. And so I think that um, with policy that reduce the, the allowable um, 
levels of sodium, for example, below the hyperpalatable food threshold for sodium um, per type of food. So that would be like, for example, if you have, if you're producing a product that has elevated, that has fat, um, you know, kind of more fat and you could still have sodium in there, but you know, if there was a federal regulation that said like, you can't have sodium that is greater than or equal to 0.3%, you know, sodium weight by gram, you know, then we might be in a better place to say like, you know, we're not having access to these foods that are just so easy to overeat, um, could, you know, largely reduce like population exposure to sodium just by, you know, the difference in the, like the, the dosage or the serving, um, but also in the degree to which people may kind of overconsume these types of foods just because they're they're so easy to do that. Right, and I, I have to imagine, and the food industry po- probably is all over this. But if you just went out and targeted sugars or just fat, you would just see a pivot the other way. Where if it was sugars being restricted, okay, let's just increase fat and increase sodium. If it was, hey, let's go all low fat, let's just increase sugar and sodium. And so you still maintain that one of those sort of evils, I guess we can call them nutrient combinations, where you've you've created this hyperpalatable scenario. So the the common thread through all of those seems to be sodium. That's my impression. And and yes, that's that's my thinking as well. Like you ask them to decrease just one nutrient, the others are going to increase. In particular, if it's not sodium, there's ways to work around that. We've actually found that um, in our analysis of like uh, of U.S. food system data, um, we also looked at items that were labeled as like reduced calorie or low fat or low sugar to see what was um, going on. And I think over half, around half at least of the items that were marketed that way were still hyperpalatable because yes, it's like, do you want low fat, you know, like we want to market a potato chip that is low in fat. Well, okay, we bake it. So we drop out most of the fat. You know, there's a lot of like starchy carbohydrates and then we still keep the sodium and they're still difficult to stop eating. Right. <laughs> so I, yeah, so I, I do, uh, I do think there's a compelling amount of information to indicate that um, sodium could be a very good lever. Are we at the point where you can quantify what is that fat sodium? combination in terms of i guess uh percentage of of calories or input into a serving size or whether it's carbohydrates and fat or carbs and sodium so that you could actually through policy inform these reformulations in a way that would be effective mm-hmm. yeah that's a really good question um the definition that i you know that that i've referenced and that i've put forth in the literature and been working with for the past five years um, has specifications that are, you know, quantitative. So that would theoretically be possible. I will say that, like, I'm still in a space where I'm, you know, doing more work in this area because one question that exists for me, for example, is like, um, you know, are all foods that would occur kind of on the lower end of those threshold, like maybe right at point you know, 0.2%, you know, um, grams per serving of sodium in, um, you know, a baked chip, like with the carbohydrate, like, is that, 
exactly the threshold, like do things above or slightly below have have similar effects, you know? So I think that an existing question for me is like, what's going on at the lower end of the threshold? Um, but I can say that a lot of the foods that we've looked at in the food supply hover quite above those thresholds. Yeah. So, Is there enough data to kind of model out? Let, let's say, for example, you come up with some type of proposal for changing policy. You could model out what would that look like in terms of the nation's calorie intake over a year, over 10 years, and then how would that affect overweight and obesity? I think there certainly would be. And that is one of the directions that I'm like really interested to see if I can pursue kind of in the next like five years, because I think that, that something like that could be really um, really useful and really informative. And I, I do think that we have, you know, we have the data in terms of the definition, we have the data in terms of, um, you know, we've established that these foods have changed in our and increased in our food supply over time. And so we can get an estimate. What I'm saying is like for the, the um, you know, how variability in um, the availability of these foods may relate to kind of population, you know, overweight and obesity rates over time. And then that information could be used to kind of make projections going right. forward. Yeah. Um, yeah. You use the words useful and informative there. And I have to wonder if that information could also be frustrating because, of course, it's it's what we can do with that information, right? And my understanding is that the the food industry would be employing scientists and food techs like you to purposefully design these foods to reach i guess this hyper palatable point sometimes people describe it as the bliss point mm -hmm. yep. uh, to drive overconsumption and to increase sales so it seems to me that even with that information if you're able to project it out show that these changes to formulations of food would result in less calorie consumption somehow to get the food industry on board incentives would need to shift agree nice shift there by the way um <laughs> <laughs> yes i mean it it is it is one thing to be able to like provide the information right and then the question becomes like um how does this kind of how does this like resonate with the public? Is this something that they they don't already know? Is this something that like lawmakers and policymakers like don't already know? You know, or is it like oh we knew it was bad, but like you know you're telling us it's more bad and okay, um, and so I, I think that gets to kind of one angle with my research that I've pursued a little more recently, because in part because I wanted to understand like is it is it really just that food companies have like just over time added more and more? They have lots of scientists and, you know, right. just added more stuff into the foods. Yeah. Which sounds horribly unethical. <laughs> so, you know. You don't have to comment um, on that. <laughs> so so the, the, the question, you know, which I think this, this narrative is, is out there, right? It's like, and, and there's been a lot of like really excellent, like um, kind of um, investigative journalism, like documentaries, books that have come out that have investigated this area of the food industry and, and like have 
you know, gotten this information out there that like, yes, this is, there's a very systematic process for doing this. There's lots of scientists behind it. Um, this is a very kind of intentional and well-run machine. Um, and yet that hasn't, it, it, for whatever reason, that hasn't shifted things enough um, to really see meaningful change. And, and another kind of, so a question that that kind of garnered for me was like, you know, if these foods do seem to have, you know, if these foods have some sort of addictive qualities, like how did the environment here get so bad? Like, was this really just by chance or could there be something else going on? More sinister. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and so, and, and so that turned, um, my attention to looking at could there be any other type of company or other type of industry that knows how to create addictive products and that may have found their way into the food supply i read and this paper of yours <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> so yes so so that's what i turned my attention to uh the tobacco industry okay so <laughs> And I get, just before we move on to the ties between tobacco or big tobacco, as sometimes they're referred to, and big food, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we say sinister and we laugh. But I, I also, from a commercial point of view, you know, I understand that food companies have shareholders, and like many mm -hmm. businesses creating products or services, increasing consumption is part of a, a profitable model. So uh, it might not all be sinister in that they're wanting people to be sick and unhealthy but more so they're focusing on their bottom line and and perhaps not considering public health as much as we'd like them to what is the tie between big tobacco and big food enlighten us well it turns out that it's uh been much stronger than i think most scientists and you know the general public have realized the U.S. tobacco, basically the, the largest companies, um, R.J. Reynolds and Philip Morris, um, who were, you know, pretty influential and in, in some of the heaviest hitters in the tobacco epidemic in the 50s. They owned and developed leading U.S. food companies and brands um, and basically dominated our food industry for over 20 years. Um, I was, I found this out by actually looking at their primary source documents, like from the industry. Um, because I think if somebody had told me this, you know, just on the face value, I'd be like, oh, come on. <laughs> like, that seems pretty wild, right? <laughs> That's a pretty... <laughs> major claim <laughs> uh, i'm getting the feeling you might need a bodyguard <laughs> <laughs> start looking behind the bushes um, so so yeah and 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 this so this wonderful resource um that's available and publicly available anyone in the world can access this site um it's from the university of california san francisco um industry documents library and they house and collect um documents from any industry that affects public health and so they have had available these um these documents that they were able to um 
collect and store for public, you know, to make publicly available from the tobacco litigation um, in the early 2000s. And so these have been available. And I, I learned about them because, uh, you know, kind of in the, the vein of, of asking, like, is this too wild? Like, is this too crazy of an idea that these two tobacco and food could be connected in any kind of meaningful manner? Um, you know, in my initial online search, I found these two papers um, um, from Dr. Laura Schmidt, who's a professor at UCSF, um, and her her colleagues that established that the U.S. tobacco companies um, applied their marketing strategies to sell sugary drinks to children, like applied their tobacco marketing strategies um, to marketing sugary drinks to children, and then they applied their broader skills that they developed with um, targeted marketing to different racial and ethnic groups in the U.S. Um, with their cigarette brands, they applied that to selling foods. Right. So they they just saw this as an opportunity to kind of leverage another form of addiction to drive profits. So the I think the first question was like. They, they looked at this from a marketing approach and they saw that, you know, these problematic um, and very aggressive tactics that were developed for cigarettes were applied to food. I think there was a from those studies, it was important because they established that, like, they applied these these similar skills that really drive sales. But the question for me remained was like, well, was this. Did this have anything to do with foods being hyper palatable or what could this purely just be argued as like, you know, as you mentioned, like it's a commercial business, um, you know, they were, you know, in the 80s, they were starting to really lose, um, you know, sales volume and things like that from the tobacco epidemic incurring litigation. And so one could argue that this was a logical business decision you know, and applying their expertise and their knowledge of like, you know, selling cigarettes to another business, you know, so in, in, in and of itself, you know, so, so in and of itself like that, there's still some leeway to say like, okay, it could have, maybe it was just business. Maybe it was just like kind of the capitalism, yeah. you know? <laughs> so is this purely something that you've looked into from an, an for interest sake or what's the, what's I guess the relevance of that connection with regards to looking forward and the prospect of being able to change the system? I think that the the that sets up a very different premise. The potential for there to have been a an industry that created a lot of public harm and basically specialized in creating addictive tobacco products could be creating foods in a similar way to make them, you know, difficult to stop eating. Um, I think that premise is really, um, it's, it's highly concerning and it's very different from how we view foods and how they've kind of originated as like, you know, foods need to provide us nutrients and caloric value. And so I think it, for me, um, shifted my understanding of what these products are and how they may be, they may operate. Um, and, and so I think that that, 
that really gets at the the question that I think, you know, this is still an open question in the field and a lot, you know, you talk to different people, they have wildly different, you know, kind of views. And, and um, you know, I think for, you know, since, um, well, really the beginning of time, we viewed, view, viewed food as something that was necessary and, you know, may, may be more or less healthy, but like we need to consume food and, and all food is kind of considered to be the same thing, food. Whereas if we if we know that there is, you know, kind of a different differential origin or very strategic. Yes, reason process. for that these foods may be available mm. and they are how they are, then that lends to an interpretation of like maybe these are not, we should not be comparing these same things as different types of food, maybe they're more like food substances and they should be treated accordingly. Right. It's the, Which it's, then makes you think about the intention of the industry. Are they willing to play ball with reformulations or does it need to be kind of more draconian measures to really change the way that people are consuming food? And I have to imagine that unless it was draconian, if I'm CEO of one of these food companies and you're asking me to reformulate to make foods less palatable, I'm immediately thinking, well, that means less sales for all the products that we we make. We're going to sell less calories. So our our yearly revenue is going to come down. Yep. So unless you're willing to say, for example, provide me with a tax cut, as a company, maybe if I meet your recommendations and I reduce my sodium and fat and you you spare me some tax and my net position is similar, I'm not really incentivized to do that. Yeah, exactly. I think that and I think it's it's that's why the voluntary approach to, you know, like oh, you know, companies voluntarily like reformulating some of their products or things like that, like just would not be effective because you're facing sales losses. The competition in the market does not change in any fundamental way. Um, and so, yes, without something buoying that, like that would, I don't think that that would be very effective. But if you have kind of at the federal level, everybody's required, you have a leveling effect where it's like, well, all the competitors are not able to sell these anymore either, you know? So like it doesn't drastically, you know, hurt, you know, some sales for like one company who attempts this, you know, voluntary, you know, decrease relative to other companies. Are there any countries ar around the world that have tried to regulate this, you know, better than the United States? Or is this very much just like a global problem and we're, we're waiting for research to kind of quantify everything and then inform policy? Mm -hmm. There are certain countries um, that have, so some countries have focused a little bit on like specific nutrients. Um, others have focused on, there are several in, in South America that have done a really um, nice job of trying to um, kind of regulate the ultra processed foods. So there are kind of some activities happening in other spaces um, in the world. Um, there, so far there, you know, again, and, and this, this kind of standardized definition of, you know, hyper palatable foods is quite new. 
And so we're still doing, I think, a lot of the work to, you know, kind of, you know, inform, like you said, like being able to make predictions about, oh, if we had a policy that, you know, required these foods, um, you know, to have their formulations change or things like that, how that would impact public health. But I think a lot of it, you know, part of the reason that I wanted to have a definition that was quantitative and could clearly identify what these foods are is that, um, I mean, governments have struggled globally to regulate products or figure out what about these foods or what, you know, what's going on with these foods that are making, you know, that are yielding these like massive public health problems with metabolic disease and obesity and things like that. And so part of of my intention with this work and my hope is that providing some very clear and explicit criteria, if supported by evidence, you know, over time can give more specific information that people can regulate on. And I think there's some some nuance that's often lost when it comes to ultra-processed foods. So there may be people li- listening thinking, is all of this research necessary? Why not just mm-hmm. get rid of ultra-processed mm-hmm. foods? Mm-hmm. And I read a, a review that Deirdre Tobias just published. I'm not sure if you've seen it, but it's just a short commentary on ultra-processed foods. And I think before you mentioned that 70% of ultra-processed foods are hyper-palatable, but not all of them are not. And you know, there's been a bunch of research associating ultra-processed foods as classified by NOVA with various cardiometabolic diseases and, and cancers, etc. But then there's also been a few studies that have attempted to look at different ultra-processed foods. And not all ultra-processed foods are equal. So... Talk to us a little bit about why that's important and why it's this is not as simple as just regulating against all foods that meet the criteria of ultra-processed. Absolutely. There are two kind of points to that, to, to the question that I'm going to respond to. The first is kind of from a scientific basis, and then the second is from like a le- regulatory like food supply um, frame. Scientifically, they are ultra processed foods are distinct from hyper palatable foods. Like definitionally, like hyper, you know, ultra processed foods are defined by the nature and extent of their industrial processing. Within that definition, there's often like a hat tip made to like, oh, and they also typically contain, you know, like added sugars or other stuff that makes them highly palatable. Um, But it's not necessarily inherent within the definition. Along with that, one scientific issue that I see with the definition of ultra-processed foods is that there is no clear mechanism through which they may yield overconsumption or you know, obesity, metabolic rate. There's several possibilities, um, but that is left to additional scientists to kind of figure out. For example, like one may be like the, you know, types of processing or types of things that are in the foods, like emulsifiers. You know, there's a lot of literature that that is starting to emerge to say like emulsifiers are, are you know, they're used for like um, texture and things like that. They're in a lot of ultra processed foods. They're bad news like metabolic, metabolically. But the definition doesn't specify that necessarily. It's just kind of like the processing in general, which could be a bajillion different things that go into processing, right? Um, 
So that's like one possibility. Another possibility is that like they include a lot of like really refined nutrients that really refine down to their um, most kind of rewarding aspects. So it could be that some of them have that plus like artificial flavors and, you know, all that type of stuff that also makes people overeat. And perhaps like the speed that those nutrients yes, are exactly. entering your system. Yeah. And mm-hmm. therefore you you don't you don't get that kind of break or the, yeah. that that hormone uh, milieu that that mm-hmm. causes you to reduce your hunger, I guess, or yeah, results and in reduce hunger, I should say. Yeah, and so so that's another possibility, right? But there's nothing super clear in the actual scientific definition that gives us a direction like where exactly to point to find that answer. Um, so those are scientifically like like that's the definition of ultra processed foods, and that's like some of the limitations that I see with it. Um, hyper palatable foods are defined, you know, like with explicit, you know, cut points and specific nutrients, and there's a very clear calculation for them. Um, and so, and that the, the premise of, of, you know, that these foods drive overeating within an eating occasion is inherent, you know, in there based on, you know, and that is reflected in the thresholds of the nutrient combination. So if that is, you know, if that hypothesis you know, holds that can be directly, you know, uh, tested and directly looked sure. at. So, so with that in mind, what mm-hmm. you're saying is, and this is at more of a practical application, and, and and I'm not saying this is necessarily the the road to go, but from a consumer point of view, I'm in the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Just telling me if something's ultra processed kind of only gets me so far, because we're not 100 percent sure what type of processing was involved to make that ultra processed food because it's so broad but if there was for example some type of hyperpalatability index and it told me on that food how likely is it that i'm going to overconsume right. the, yeah. the calories <laughs> from that food that would be more instructive um i think that that could be super helpful um i will i i will point out though that like given you know from a scientific perspective those are kind of what i see as you know some of the the limitations but overall you know ultra processed foods like the the concept does a pretty good job like as you mentioned there's a ton of like epidemiological literature like connecting these types of foods to various you know cardiometabolic you know disease outcomes and things like that so i think you know even if you walk into a grocery store and like you know we're just told about ultra processed foods i think it would get you like reasonably far it would be pretty good um i think what the hyper palatability adds is like a specific is a mechanism um that's important for scientific research but then i also think that an important aspect of of the hyper palatability premise is that it can be applied to foods cooked at home and foods that are um uh, that can be combined in a manner you know that may Meet the meet a definition of hyperpalatability, but one might not suspect if they were just thinking about trying to avoid like highly industrialized processed foods. Right. So how, do- friends, you may remember my conversation with Dr. David Spiegel, leading Stanford psychiatrist, who spoke to me about the underrated benefits of hypnotherapy, a clinically backed method supported by over four hundred research papers proven to reduce stress and anxiety, help focus, and reinforce new habits. David has taken this research and his clinical practice and created a digital experience in an app called Reverie, where you can access all his sessions whenever you need them. People all over the world are now using Reverie 
to quit smoking, gain control over other addictions, reduce physical pain, feel more relaxed, and improve their mental health. I've been using it to improve my sleep, and I can't recommend it more. The Proof community members can use Reverie for 30 days totally free with a guest pass. Just visit reverie.com forward slash the proof. That's R-E-V-E-R-I dot com forward slash the proof to redeem. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. How do we navigate that? You know, I, I'm thinking about the food that I make at home. Sometimes I'll have a smoothie. And in that smoothie, I'll, I'll have banana berries and maybe we should talk about the difference between i guess sugars coming from added sugars that are refined versus in, in whole food mm-hmm. and whether that's different but banana berries there's probably uh some peanut butter so mm-hmm. we have fat yeah. and salt mm-hmm. <laughs> going in there yeah uh i will add protein powder protein mm-hmm. i want to talk about mm-hmm. but i will blend all of that up yep. And now I, I have to imagine that I have a relatively high fat, high carbohydrate and uh, some salt, some sodium in there. Have I created a hyperpalatable food unknowingly there or not? That specific example, I actually don't know if that would be. My, my thought is that like, so in the, and this is accounted for like in the calculation of of hyperpalatable foods as well that like sugars coming if they're retained kind of in their you know whole form so let's say like the berries and the banana right like they have naturally occurring sugar in there but they also you've used them whole so in so you've also kept them intact with like the the fiber that comes with them and the water content. i have blended them though yeah but you know it's it's still you in included there. it all in there it's not right. like you use like a you know a strainer Yeah. Yeah. So and in that calculation, for example, the consideration of, um, you know, the let's say the carbs, you know, we really try to get at like the premise of the starchy carbs. And so this would be like we we subtract out the fiber and the sugar um, from that piece of the definition. Um, Oftentimes, like the 
yeah, like if you've retained the other components with the food um, and you've added additional things like in your mixture that would not hit on the you know criteria or might help in some way, um, you know, there's there's. Uh, I guess what I'm saying is it depends, but I don't necessarily I'm not like, oh, I bet that would totally ding, you know, peanut butter. Yes, maybe, but that's more of a fat sodium, you know, and then if you kind of blend it in the entire mixture, it might actually be a little bit diluted. <laughs> so so what so, what would the kind of common foods that maybe people are making at home that are hyper palatable and and they wouldn't be aware of it? Yeah. Um we can go back to my omelet example, you know? Lots of egg-based dishes, but like omelet, you know, make it at home. We get like the fresh eggs, cheese, bacon, you know, maybe throw in a few vegetables, add in some butter or oil and salt. That could easily, um, you know, become fat and sodium hyperpalatable. Um, again, it could depend, right? If you don't add a lot of sodium, it might not. Um, but you'd also have to consider that, you know, a lot of the cheeses that we typically use have, have sodium. And the other components often contain, you know, sodium. But is is this why you, you think people have anecdotally there's there's people that have lost a lot of weight on low carb, there's people that have lost a lot of weight on low fat. The the common thread, I guess, being there that in both scenarios, usually there is a reduction in emphasis on ultra processed foods. So I have to imagine that sodium comes down in addition to either bringing carbs down or bringing fat down and so you you are lowering the palatability of the diet either way it seems like a reasonable hypothesis it does seem like you know the reduction of you know the ultra processed foods and the sodium i mean that that seems like it would make sense to me with the caveat that i don't i don't do work you know specifically in that area so um, I'm I'm not kind of equipped to talk in detail about you know what might be happening there, but I think the premise of reducing these types of foods and having the sodium come down um, is a good you know like it certainly seems to be a commonality. Mm -hmm. Where does protein enter this conversation about hyperpalatability? I, I had Stephen Simpson and David Robinheimer on my show a while back. You, you'd be familiar with their work and protein leverage. And they have a book called Eat Like the Animals, which I loved, <laughs> yep. uh, particularly listening to them mm -hmm. narrate that. It was great. They both have amazing voices. Uh, you know, their thesis, I guess, is that there's this strong appetite for protein. And we will eat and continue to eat until we get enough protein, even if that means over-consuming calories. And when they look at overweight and obesity, I believe that they explain, maybe not all of it, but a large part of that due to the fact that our food environment is what they would say is protein dilute. What are your thoughts, I guess, on you know what role protein plays in energy intake, energy balance, obesity, and whether that is as big a contributor as hyperpalatability or does it intersect with hyperpalatability? Yeah, it's certainly an interesting area. Um, and um, I can say that 
we've looked at it a bit in its relation with with hyperpalatability um, because like you know in hyperpalatability protein is not considered so it's it's just not looked at at all um, however in looking at for example a lot of the you know fat and sodium hyperpalatable foods they're often things that contain high sodium sorry high protein <laughs> and so um that always you know I, I always thought that was a little bit curious you know knowing the you know um kind of protein leverage and kind of the premise of like having you know low you know kind of a protein dilute type food supply um we so so that kind of piqued you know kind of a in in interest for me because because those th two things didn't really seem to coincide quite as as elegantly as I would think they might um you know based on kind of that the theory and in um my collaboration with um Dr. Kevin Hall at the um NIA National Institutes of Health um we used a couple of his um existing data sets um where he did several inpatient um feeding trials with healthy adults um they knew all of the the meal and the ingredients um you know that they served to individuals it was over like 30 days <laughs> it was a very extended time period um and um they tested different types of diets so like high carb high fat um ultra processed or not and so so what we were able to do with these data by you know combining them and kind of looking at them all together was to ask a couple of these questions like what are some of the driving things that are most important um characteristics of a meal um, looking at, again, just discreetly, like within an eating occasion. Um, and we looked at the hyperpalatability of the meal. We looked at the percentage of protein that was in the meal. Um, and we had a few other things, including like eating rate and um, the energy density of the meal, too, because um, that has has been on the radar for quite a while as being a um, potential factor in, in um, greater energy intake. And um, so our results were curious. Um, because they actually, they, they seem to indicate that like the food, the meals that contained higher protein, um, people tended to eat more of them. Yeah. So as opposed to the premise of like protein being satiating, like maybe there's, you know, it can kind of help within a, you know, to, um, um, with intake, we found that like the hyperpalatability of the meal, um, and the energy density were like really important drivers of the meal, but over, uh, sorry, of intake within the eating occasion. Um, but even when accounting for protein, um, those were kind of the, the heavier hitters. And then protein was kind of in the opposite direction as like one might expect given kind of the premise that, you know, protein you know, should have like a um, sort of help a regulatory effect on our eating. So it was a, it was a little bit of a head scratcher. It wasn't fully kind of in line with with the that premise. Um, but I don't know. It could be that, you know, that was something we, we said in the paper. We we're like, mm, we're not really sure what's going on here. But um, there's some evidence to indicate that, like, in kind of the area that I'm looking at, things that are often have high fat and high sodium that people tend to overeat also contain Protein. Yeah. So could it be that that the effect that protein has on satiety depends on what you're consuming it with as well? So like for example, let's say someone has a very lean cut of meat. You know, 
akin to what our ancestors may have eaten. Mm-hmm. I have to imagine that the satiety value of eating that would be different to eating a kind of marbled cut of beef and putting salt on it. Could be. <laughs> yeah, I, I I really don't know. These are all kind of like questions that really need to be tested, right? Because, because um, yeah, we the, I think these are things that we don't really know. Right. Yeah, um, there's another study yeah. that are you familiar with Barbara Roll's work? Yeah, yeah. right. She wrote a great book, Volumetrics, mm-hmm. and I just I recall this study where, and you will have seen this, they they had people come in and they fed them lunch and dinner. And it was an ad ad lib study, so eat as much as you want over the, over the course of the lunch and the dinner, and then they'll track your energy intake, hunger, uh, cravings, satisfaction with the meal. And these meals were sort of covertly modified. So some people, I think, it was as low as like five percent protein or ten percent, and then it went fifteen percent protein, twenty percent, twenty five, thirty percent, and they made sure the meal, from an energy density point of view and palatability was the same or similar to try and take those variables out. Mm -hmm. And so the idea here is if protein is inherently satiating and going to reduce appetite, then the people that were eating the 30% protein meals across the day should have a lower energy intake. But they didn't see that. So it was the same energy intake. And, And I've always found, I guess, that result difficult to reconcile with Stephen Simpson and, and David Raubenheimer's work. So um, it sounds like there's more research to be done on protein. <laughs> I think so. I think so, particularly with the um, the added, with the consideration for, for palatability. Yeah, and hyperpalatability. Now I'm thinking about Kevin Hall's ultra-processed versus <laughs> unprocessed study that he did. And I'm intrigued how you kind of make sense of the findings. You know, my understanding of that study was we're comparing two diets, one that's ultra-processed, one that's unprocessed, but we're going to match for carbohydrates, for fat, for protein, for fiber, and sodium. But even then still, when eating the ultra-processed diet, people were consuming more calories. So was it palatability was it eating rate was it energy density what what do you think kind of explained the results from that study yeah so so the results were really interesting because they were pretty compelling like the the participants consumed like 500 calories a day more um so pretty substantial relative to the the unprocessed diet um and um I thought it was it was really interesting because yes, they matched on a whole bunch of those those um, nutrients that you mentioned, um, but that was at the overall dietary level, and didn't really account for the nutrients that may occur within this within a food or within a meal um, that was served to participants that may have um, played a role there, and so. Um, my hypothesis was that hi- the hyperpalatability of the meals may have been one factor that could have, um, you know, played a role in the, you know, the observed findings where participants consumed about, you know, 500 calories more. Um, and so that was part of when I published the definition um, and Kevin and I had some 
initial correspondence <laughs> about the premise of being able to test this hypothesis using his data, um, he was originally skeptical because he was like, well, but we assessed palatability like sub like subjectively rated by participants and there were no kind of overall average differences how do you do that you ask someone like out of 10 how satisfied yes i believe it was some like yeah like visual analog scale zero to ten um and so he said you know we didn't find any um overall differences across the diet so he was like i i I'm skeptical, but but we could we could look at this, um, and so that was kind of the the starting point for some for our collaboration on the study that um, that I mentioned uh, um, you know earlier when we were talking that combined this ultra processed food data with another trial that he did as well, and so within that we found um, that um, the hyper palatability of the meal served to participants. Um, was one of the strongest drivers of their intake at that meal. Um, and so that was, and, and that was viewed really across the diets. And we also, um, and we also considered energy density, which was at that time, um, one of the main criticisms of like their findings that they didn't control for energy density across the diets. So people thought like, oh, well, it's probably just that. Um, and so what we did in, in when we analyzed the data was that we looked at whether um, basically the two hyperpalatability and the energy density were basically doing the same kind of having similar and kind of overlapping effects um, to promote greater consumption. And what we found was interesting because they they weren't kind of just synonymous within themselves. Like there was a distinct role of hyperpalatability in promoting greater energy intake within the meal. And then there was also a distinct role of the energy density. Um, so even when kind of we put them in like a statistical model and we can basically think of like letting them duke it, duke it out, you know, and like whoever still comes out with like, you know, enough kind of predictive, um, um, you know, uh, utility for understanding, um, energy intake within that meal would result as being like a significant predictor, right? Um, but the interesting thing was that they both did and they had some interesting effects where if the hyper palatability of the meal was much, um, was pretty high, the effects of the energy density of the meal were kind of less strong and vice versa. So they really had like interesting, interesting. nuanced effects. Um, to, so, th so there was quite a bit going on with that and, and it was really kind of, you know, it was like, oh, we're just kind of touching the surface here. Right. Asking people how satisfied they are with a meal and then using that to determine palatability, that assumes that you can assess this subjectively, that hyper palatable foods will definitively result in someone saying I'm more satisfied with that. But what happens if those hyperpalatable hyper foods are affecting energy intake at a more subconscious level? I'm glad you asked this because this circles us back to kind of the point that we were talking about earlier between like wanting versus liking and kind of the drive to consume these foods versus just like the subjective experience of eating these foods, which would be like the you know, the pleasantness or the, the you know, the palatability. Um, I think the, the premise of like the hyper palatability gets at 
um, that these foods affect the wanting. They affect the drive um, to consume them, which is distinct from the subjective individual level response of like how pleasant is it to consume these. So I think it's different. Um, and that's that's kind of the distinction between between the two. Let's pretend we're we're speaking to my mom, 65 years old. And you know, I'm sure she would say to me, I want to lose a few kilograms. <laughs> now it sounds like hyper palatable foods are somewhat ubiquitous. So how at an individual level, do we make sense of this? Because it seems extremely complex to be turning around labels and working out percentage fat and sodium and all of these different calculations that perhaps would be too much for the typical person. I have two pieces of, of advice. The first would be go for the whole foods, the whole fresh foods that occur as they are in nature. So like the vegetables, the fruit, the whole pieces of meat, the legumes, um, and the, you know, buy them in a in a version that is not really manipulated or or you know dressed up or you know lots of things added to it. Um, so that way you can have control over that and you can add things as you wish um, at home, but that's under your control. Um, and you're starting from a whole kind of fresh food as your base. Um, and then the second is um, watch and be leery of the sodium, because as we know, the the two, well, the two of the three types of hyperpalatable foods contain um, elevated sodium. So that's the the sneaky one, kind of. I have to imagine, you know, the obvious foods that people think about as ice cream and sugar sweetened beverages. Mm-hmm. But it, is it this kind of gray area where you have high sodium foods, where these hyperpalatable foods could be kind of sliding under the radar? People aren't aware of them. Oh, absolutely, um, absolutely. And things like even things that that might seem relatively benign, like crackers or you know pretzels or things like that, that are pretty common snack foods and things that we might otherwise not view as particularly, you know, concerning, most of them are hyper palatable. And so, and it is, you know, in, it is, you know, it's the sodium, right? As the commonality. Um, so one way I, I've noticed recently in, in at least our grocery store that, um, I don't remember the brand, but there are starting to be some types of crackers that are produced with like no added sodium or they are described as like a hint of salt or something like that. But they have much lower sodium than the kind of standard comparator like version um, that the companies produce. And so like that's actually a way that um, one could, you know, potentially try to find like a cracker that they can snack on, but that, you know, isn't designed to make them eat the whole box. I, th- <laughs> in one I think that certainly when I look at something and it says low sodium, I immediately, my brain says, it's not going to taste as good. <laughs> so, that is correct. <laughs> I think we've made it clear that, that in some ways our kind of reward systems have been hijacked by these foods. So are we asking people to degree to give up some of their joy for food and meals? Oh, this is an excellent question. Okay. 
I think, and and again, I can speak mostly for the for the U.S. food environment because that's where most of my work has been done. I think that because our food supply is so saturated with these foods, we have gotten used to um, kind of experiencing a heightened or exaggerated degree of like reward and pleasure when we consume various types of foods that really in some sense shouldn't be there in the same way um, if we were only consuming like whole and fresh foods. That being said, I think there's a really important distinction between having this kind of artificially rewarding experience um, and eating whole and fresh foods um, that in and of themselves are are pleasant to consume, right? And and so I think that and this part of my kind of response to this comes because I've had a very um, distinct comparator environment that I've been able to go into on a regular basis. So this would be Italy, um, and so there, for example, um, the there are far fewer hyper palatable foods. And a lot of the foods that are served um, or that people cook at home, um, they are so good. They're fresh. They're like rich with the flavors. Like, and it's a it's it's wonderful <laughs> to eat foods there. But they're most of them are not hyper palatable. <laughs> yes. So I think that that's a really important distinction that like. You know, we should be enjoying foods that we're consuming. Um, and it is very, it can be very reinforcing to do so. But that I think is a very different experience than what we're used to currently. And I feel like some of that is to do with a different way of living, different way of life, how much time we spend cooking. And I have to, I have to imagine that a lot of these convenience foods have we're sort of born out of necessity, you know, dual income homes, less time for, you know, women are not in the kitchen <laughs> as traditionally they would have been. Cool. So how do we kind of, I guess, square that, you know, people having the time and, and education and skills to prepare these meals in a way that is still enjoyable? Is that a, a barrier here? Mm, I think to some degree, but I think also – what we've seen in the U.S. Um, in particular is like really an erosion of kind of the degree to which we value um, food, you know, kind of preparing and cooking and making food. Um, and I actually think that's like from from some of my research, what I saw was that the tobacco companies that owned craft and they own Nabisco and all these major brands. Um, frozen foods, frozen entrees, convenience meals were a major cornerstone of their, um, their focus and the types of products that they developed. And so I think that in a way that may, you know, may not be present to such a heightened degree, like in other countries, um, we saw that they really leaned into that here. And as a result, I think that, you know, now we're kind of at a point where 
there is not as much valuation kind of culturally and, and in society on preparing and cooking foods. But I think that there is there's a very specific reason that it seems like there is that degree of erosion. What about the, the time, the duration, lifetime exposure to these foods in terms of our ability to to kind of shift back to more whole foods, natural foods that are not hyper palatable? And I'm thinking here about you know, marketing of a lot of these foods to to young children. Does this get harder and harder over time to kind of swing the pendulum and come back to healthier foods, but and still derive joy from them. The longer that you've been exposed to hyperpalatable foods, I think it's a really good question. Um, what we know from the addiction science space is that the earliest exposure, early and repeated exposure, developmentally to a substance, um, can can create kind of the uh, a heightened risk profile for. Um, kind of problematic substance use. So again, the alcohol corollary, we typically look at early adolescence um, and folks who initiate alcohol use in early adolescence when their brains are very sensitive, um, neurodevelopmentally, you know, that can have kind of downstream effects um, as they, they age and develop. Applying that to food, the, ex- the point of exposure now in our population to these types of foods is infancy. Um, and infants are extraordinarily sensitive to their nutritional environments. And so the, I, I think a really alarming point here is that we may now have generations of, um, you know, infants and, and um, you know, either, even folks who were born in, in like the, you know, the 80s and 90s when these foods were really kind of taken off, um, that that may have had kind of um, um, early and repeated exposure to these foods, which may have, um, you know, kind of predisposed folks to, you know, ha- developing heightened motivation to consume hyperpalatable foods at a very early age, um, which can influence, you know, risk for weight gain, obesity, cardiometabolic diseases. So I think that the the premise that um, infants here are kind of regularly exposed to these foods so early is really concerning and is a point of um of research that that you know we're going to be looking into okay so with that in mind everything else we've spoken to i'm i'm presuming and i i I think i've heard you kind of speak to this but your role or your north star here is in some ways to provide helpful information that could inform policy and change the food environment in a a constructive, productive way that results in less calorie consumption or at least reduces a a calorie excess and through that shift energy balance, reduce obesity and and overweight. We, We spoke about the potential benefits that are up for grabs if we were able to regulate and lower sodium. Let's say you're in charge right now. You're in government. What are the the main regulations, restrictions would you put in place that would result in productive reformulation? I have several answers to that. The focus on reformulation, I think, would be... um, 
I would go for for hyper palatable foods and and at the federal level having folks in the you know food companies reduce the their nutrients um to be below those thresholds that would the important piece there would be it re- that it would reduce population level just like you know risk and saturation um to being exposed to these all the time and it would put the onus on the food companies to reformulate so that's based on those ingredient combinations fat and sodium Mm -hmm. carbohydrates and sodium Mm -hmm. fat and cups yeah fat and sugar yeah um and i think it's also important that like the i think our findings with the connecting the tobacco companies to hyper palatable foods are also a compelling piece of this here because in our um, research, we found that the tobacco companies were were consistently associated with um, the production and the sales of both types of hyper palatable foods that had elevated sodium. So the fat and sodium and the carbon sodium. And so we think that they're, you know, if they identified something about the sodium that seems to be, you know, um, a reliable piece of their sales and of their kind of product portfolios, then I think that indicates that we're probably onto something with that. <laughs> yeah, and, and it would, and I think in doing so, that would put the responsibility back on the food companies to reformulate, but it would also level the playing field. So it wouldn't be asking like certain food companies to do something and then lose sales because the other companies aren't doing it. Um, and I think that's also important because that type of approach would retain all the foods in the food supply. A major concern that I would have with the regulation of, let's say, ultra-processed foods, to kind of get back to our conversation about, are these the same? How different are they? Like, does it matter? Regulation of ultra-processed foods in terms of restricting sales, maybe just pulling them out of the entire food supply, we lose like 60% of our food supply, maybe more. Um, and so not only would that create major concerns about losing more than half of our food supply, but also that those types of foods are often the ones that are the cheapest in the U.S. food supply. And so we would also be potentially like, you know, it exaggerating and, and further intensifying the degree that individuals may experience food insecurity and things like that. So, so appreciating inequity and that not all ultra processed foods are equal and that there might be a chance to reformulate ultra processed foods in a way that they are not having deleterious effects on health um possibly i think that with the you know even being able to retain the ultra processed foods if they have if they're not hyper palatable you know it it keeps the foods in the food supply. So um, I don't think that the regulation would need to be specific to like, you know, only, you know, ultra processed foods, but I think that the premise would be useful. Right. Um, I see what you're saying. You're saying that there are ultra processed foods that are hyper palatable. Those are the ones we should focus on for reformulation. Then there are ultra processed foods that are not hyper palatable that are perhaps less of an issue. Possibly. And I'm like, "Mm, somebody else can do something with those because I don't know enough about that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I would also also take some pointers from the precedent that's already been set in terms of federal policy 
um, for addressing addictive substances, you know, specifically the tobacco epidemic and regulating nicotine as the addictive agent and cigarettes. Um, because, you know, now that we know that, you know, these the same players were involved here in the food supply as well as um, the, you know, in the tobacco epidemic, um, there's a roadmap there, which includes, um, you know, things like um, banning or substantially reducing marketing of hyper palatable fi- foods to children. Banning <laughs> sounds very draconian. <laughs> I, think that, I, think I think the word ban scares a lot of people, particularly in this country. Yeah, fair, fair. <laughs> Restricting. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, to the same in the same vein, right? Like, tobacco companies are not allowed to market cigarettes to children. Because we have established that their harms are so great. So if we are, you know, considering kind of similar approaches, that could be on the table, you know, and, and you know, or at least an age restriction, right? So, so things like that. Um, they're, um, you know, also kind of product placement. You know, the cigarettes now are behind the counter you have to go to the cashier and like ask for them and show an id which you know involves age restrictions on purchases and kind of restricting where they are available in the store um, which could also be very useful for hyper palatable foods and again it wouldn't be you know i'm i'm envisioning something like you know we have all of kind of the normal foods in the grocery store that we have now but below the hyper palatability you know kind of Yes, like, yeah, like the cut points. And then I'm not saying take, you know, like nobody can ever have an Oreo. Like I want to, you know, like I think we could have those products still, but put them also behind the counter. Have an age, you know, have like an age, um, you know, restriction or limit on purchasing those. And and so, again, that that is kind of a way that using a series of steps, um, we could start to put um, public health and the protection of individuals, particularly vulnerable individuals in our society, kind of first. So similar to cigarettes, they're still available, but you buy them knowing that yeah. you're incre- increasing your risk of lung cancer. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so in that context you just mentioned, you could buy Oreos or whatever other food, but you know that you're increasing your risk of putting on weight and cardiometabolic disease. One of the things that we haven't spoken about that I suspect could be on the table with regards to reformulations, particularly the combination of sugar and sodium, and then the other combination of, of sugar and fat. If there are restrictions on sugar in place, and then the food industry was to instead replace sugar with artificial non-nutritive sweeteners, which I imagine have a similar effect, and I'll get you to speak to this, on the reward centers of the brain. If you s- swap out those sugars for these synthetic, non-nutritive sweeteners, what happens to palatability, energy consumption, and then the effect that that has on obesity and, and overweight? Mm-hmm. Good question. Um, I can lead by saying I don't think we're entirely sure. Although non-nutritive sweeteners don't um, provide calories in the same way that sugar does, they can have some negative effects on our gut microbiome. 
Um, and they, there's also, I think, an open question. Um, some folks may be looking into this, although I'll put in the caveat that um, I don't do as much work in the artificial sweetener area, so I'm not as up to date with that. But you know, the the premise that you know these these types of sugars are very sweet. And they can still, you know, make you can, you know, when you consume a food with artificial sweetener, you still get the experience of, of a high degree of sweetness. Um, I think there's an open question about how that affects our brain reward neurocircuitry. And if there are similar effects, um, I think a concern is that we could still observe um, some of the the effects that a full fat and sugar kind of combination could have in terms of like increasing our drive to eat these foods over time, increasing our wanting through the neurobiological changes that can occur. Um, so that would be my concern. I think that is still kind of an open question about does that happen and to what degree with mm -hmm. the artificial sweeteners. Have you seen the satiety per calorie or satiety indexes that have been floating around on online over the last year or so a bit it, is there some overlap between that and and hyperpalatability i mm, i don't know as directly i've like i like i have seen these kind of on glance but i honestly don't have a lot of information about like what they're based on i could you know i would expect that you know, the foods that are hyper palatable would be kind of low on that <laughs> on that index because they don't typically contain a high degree of like fiber, for example, and things like that. But um, but yeah, sort of beyond that, I'm not really sure. Well, Tara, this has been an absolute pleasure. I think the the work that you're doing has tremendous real world potential to to change the health of of society, public health. So I appreciate your contribution to science. Thank you so much for flying here today and, and taking time out of your week to join us. Thanks so much for having me. There you have it, friends. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did and want to stay up to date with future episodes, be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube and follow on Apple or Spotify. Finally, thank you for showing up and the effort that you're making to take control of your health. I look forward to hanging out with you again in the next episode.